You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 253, Chuck DeGroat, an invitation to obscurity, some really important spiritual formation here. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm so honored that you're here. Thanks for downloading. If you like the show, I know you're going to hear a great conversation today. We, we always have great conversations. In fact, we're way over 250 episodes at this point. That's amazing. Um, if you uh, hear, hear something that you like or that is really speaks to you, would you just share this with a friend, either on social media, send them a text, or just in a conversation, say, hey, my, one of the shows I listen to is halfway there. You should listen. I would love and be honored by that. Uh, okay. Thank you for doing that. That's enough about that. I'm excited to introduce our guest, and uh, I can't wait to hear more of his story. He's a professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality, which you guys know is stuff I love to hear about, at Western Theological Seminary. And he's the author of When Narcissism Comes to Church. We're going to talk about that as well as his story. Our guest is Chuck DeGroat. Chuck, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. I'm excited to have you. And uh, I definitely think you are part of, with your with this book, part of this kind of conversation that evangelicals have, evangelicalism is having with itself that I think is really kind of fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what are you making of all that? Let's start I... out with a softball. Yeah, right. It's, <laughs> I mean, it, seems, it seems that uh, mine is not a solo book on this, right? I mean, yeah. in the same year that mine came out, uh, Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger came out with a book, Diane Langberg, Wade Mullen. Um, uh, there are a few others. I It seems that we're in the midst of a kind of reckoning, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, and and it seems that you know you probably trace it back just a few years to to the the Me Too movement and church to probably social media people telling their stories naming some things they've experienced in the church and so yeah it seems like we're in a really important moment and uh, we're doing everything we can to kind of honor that moment and listen well and tell stories yeah absolutely um, which I think is is super powerful. And it'd be interesting to see where we go from here. I'm sure we could talk about all of that, but I want to hear your story. We'll get, we'll get into more about the book here in a little bit. Um, Tell me, so you're, you're in Michigan now, but where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I grew up on Long Island, New York. Um, My parents were a product of, of uh, well, the white flight from New York city. My dad grew up in Queens, my mom in Brooklyn uh, or Jamaica, Brooklyn, Queens. Out to Long Island, uh, where, uh, you know, the promise was a safe place, an enclave to build your family, build your life. Um, And they couldn't have a kid for 14 years. Um, I came along 14 years later after a lot of pain in their own life and their own story. And so I was, um, get get this as a setup for me being a a therapist, a pastor. I was the savior. Like I was the kid who was going to save their marriage, you know, 14 years in. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No pressure, right? no pressure at all you don't feel that even in the womb you know in the first months of life uh so i was i was born into uh a a troubled marriage in um a place that was supposed to be pristine and and uh with the promise of of life and freedom and happiness and um and so i i met you know 
at least part of my story is navigating that. And I think from an early age, intuiting a uh, kind of anxiety in my home and trauma in my my experience. And so it's interesting how, you know, people who grew up in that write books on psychology and and, and try to make sense of, of life. Yeah. So how did that, how was your experience of that, of the anxiety and these kinds of things it, yeah. as, a, as a kid? What did that do for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that I was a pretty anxious kid. Mm. Um, I... I did not have anyone in my life to put words to that. And so it was largely um, contained and beneath the surface. But uh, from a very early age, I started having panic and migraines and all kinds of symptoms like that. Mm -hmm. Um, What I found, though, was uh, in high school, uh, I was noticed for my brain, for my my, uh, capacity to understand theology. And so for the next 10 years, I just kind of mastered theology until I found myself. Now, this is kind of speeding up the story. 10 years later yeah. in seminary, um, all in my head, having having really mastered um, Reformed theology, but uh, with a pastoral counseling professor in his office saying to me, Chuck, you are um, you are you're going to be dangerous if you don't do some work on your life. And wow. you're probably already you're going to be dangerous to the church. You're probably probably already dangerous to your wife. Um, and so I heard that at about 27 years old. And that's what, uh, that's, that's the first thing that sort of got me looking at my own life and my own story. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating. So was your family, would you say your family was a Christian family? Were you guys churchgoers? Yeah. The the interesting story is that my parents, um, took me to a Lutheran church to get baptized and it kind of stuck. But, um, this was, uh, in the 1970s, Long Island, New York, um, church was a pretty wild place. The Jesus movement was in full mm-hmm. swing. Um, the guy who baptized me, the pastor who baptized me, left Christianity to become a rabbi. Um, oh, wow. My parents floated from church to church, and so it was a, it was sort of an unstable Christian upbringing because my parents had just come to faith. My dad was following a radio preacher who um, sort of had the secret key to the allegorical meaning of the Bible and was predicting the end of the world. And so oh, wow. my dad was into this kind of um, fundamentalism that, that was, was big uh, for, for my, my experience of God, experience of Christianity. So yeah, it was a really interesting faith experience growing up. Yeah, that is, that is I'm trying to think of the right word. I want to say jumbled. I don't think that's the right word, but there's sort of, sort of this odd yeah. mix, right? Like this yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. So you yeah. got a, got a lot of different glimpses. What was that? So then how did you make sense of God and how did it finally become real yeah. for you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think jumbled is a really good word and you actually you probably helped me. So I'll have to pay you for a therapy session here, <laughs> but uh, I think maybe that's why I was drawn to the kind of rigid Calvinism that I was drawn to because oh. it was a kind of a coherent system. You know, it was, it was five points um, and proof texts and uh, uh, like a, a way of understanding scripture, a grid, a map, you know, that I think was probably helpful. It gave me some clear categories in the midst of, of um, a world that felt pretty anxiety producing and uncertain, you know. And so, uh, yeah, that, I mean, my my faith experience in high school, particularly when I started uh, uh going to youth group with a guy who was himself pretty heady and into reformed theology was, was one where I committed myself to reading books 
in high school on the Westminster Catechism oh, wow. and uh, Reformed Theology, right? So I was all in at that stage. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've said this before, but you bring a little new meaning to it for me. I've often said that Calvinism is a personality type as much as it is a theological system. There's a certain something that people are attracted to. So it sounds like for you, it was structure. It was order. It made sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if uh, people listening know anything about the Enneagram, I identify as a four. So there could be some Ah. chaos underneath. So I think probably what that gave me is a sense of order in the midst of my, my inner chaos, my story that was chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So did you ever have like a personal commitment to Christ or was there, and if not, that's okay. But like, was there, yeah. was there, tell me that story. I think probably multiple personal yeah. commitments to Christ because the, this radio preacher that my dad was listening to was, um, you know, back in the day, believe it or not, we didn't have podcasts. And so, uh, <laughs> sadly, you know, I had a clock radio next to, next to my bed and there would be an invitation to give your life to Jesus. And I would give my life to Jesus over and over and over again, because, uh, there was this sense that I just didn't take the first time, the second time, the third time. So yeah, there was that experience. Um, so, so there again, I mean, that is a revelation of my own anxiety, right? Right. right yeah. Okay. See, that's fascinating. I don't know if this relates to what you wrote in, in when narcissism comes to church necessarily, but I've been contemplating so much how so much of what evangelicalism kind of and fundament the fundamentalism within evangelicalism yeah. has wrought is that sort of manipulation of like, oh, you need to make the choice. You got to do this thing, yeah. right? Like, yes. yeah. How did you, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That just, it makes, it makes me a little bit crazy to be honest with you. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this in, within fundamentalism, right? This uh, dogged need for certainty, right? And I think mm-hmm. in, an experience of certainty with God, um, a certainty in our theology. Uh, and so, yeah. I mean, I I think that that was that was all there, and it, I think it preys on anxiety and insecurity. I mean, I I think I mean, if even if as we're talking about the phenomenon of narcissism and narcissistic leaders. I think they they tend to attract people who are insecure, who are anxious, who need they they need the kind of strong domineering leader. Um, there have been whole sociological studies of movements, the kinds of leaders who attract masses to them, masses of anxious people. Right, right. Wow, really interesting. Okay, so you you grew up in this sort of chaotic environment, and you discovered and you were reading. That's amazing that you're reading like Westminster Catechism, yeah, right, Confession. Right. Like, I never would have attempted that, but uh, I guess I did some. But that's so that's really interesting. So you kind of dove into that, and then where'd that lead you? Were you like feeling a call to ministry, or what was how that how all that happened? Yeah, you know. So uh, after that, I found myself at a Midwestern college, Dort College. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And what was interesting about that is that I was sort of. Um, released cure not completely cured of, of my my fundamentalism you might say during those days because it was there was a kind of more i, I don't know like a more generous reformed perspective mm-hmm. that i experienced in college um a kuyperianism you know abraham kuyper um was this reformed um uh not just theologian but but uh but he was the leader he was a well, prime minister of the Netherlands too, right? And so he had this kind of comprehensive world and life view uh, and political theology. And so um, and wanted to see uh, a theology impact all of life, scripture impact all of life, faith impact all of life. And so there was this, um, for me, this real interest in um, political theory that emerged from that. Philosophy, I became a philosophy major, 
Um, and so it kind of broadened and maybe softened me in terms of my, my theological fundamentalism, probably created other fundamentalisms along the way, of course. But yeah. Uh, and so I actually wasn't thinking about ministry. I was actually thinking about going off and doing a master's degree. But as is often the case, met my wife at some point. We, our trajectory together took us to Chicago to a different trinity than what you went to. Oh, yeah. I went, she went to Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights. Um, I followed her there and um, for two years sold high-end electronics at a high-end audio video store. I, I sold like those big laser discs. Um, <laughs> that's cool. And um, yeah, massive TVs and sound systems for people for two years because that's what philosophy majors do. <laughs> I, I almost made the comment. Uh, I was like, okay, so you were, you study philosophy in college. You don't really care what kind of job you get later because <laughs> right. nobody's right. paying philosophers, yeah. but yeah. Uh, well, interesting. So Dork college, that's cool. So that's in Iowa, right? So that's, I, that's right. I grew up in Des Moines. Yeah. So that's my, that's my oh, yeah. world. And, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and Kristen Dumay was from there, which is, is kind of cool. Yeah. If you, if my you know wife her. is from Pella, Iowa, okay. which is not far out of Des Moines, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 Oh, big deal. My, my mom to this day, when she visits Iowa, she has to go to Pella to get Dutch yeah. letters and there's some sort of sausage that she likes that yeah. you can only get there. Yeah. Right. So yeah. by the way, interesting thing about Kristen Dumay, her dad was the theology prop when I went to board. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think he's still there, but as she told me anyway, but that's yeah. su super cool. Okay. That's a good connection. Yeah. Uh, love that. Uh, okay, so you moved to Chicago. You're selling laser discs. Where, where does that lead you? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Was that a spiritual? Was what was that like spiritually for you? I'm just I'm curious. Maybe maybe nothing. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that um, it was a it was a, a probably a necessary season of like getting getting away from all the studies and getting out of my head and um, being around for two years, being around guys who weren't Christians. Um, I, uh, I, I, I guess I'll just say it here that, you know, I sat around at one point, I remember in the living room, um, the bong was being passed around. Um, there was a guy there who was a lead singer of, of a band. I think it was called psycho circus. Um, <laughs> and we started talking about Ecclesiastes and he came to faith and, and I, I, I remember just sitting there thinking, this is just unbelievable. You know, a year ago I was studying philosophy um, and here I am with the lead singer of Psycho Circus. He's given his life to Jesus um, as we're smoking weed. Um, it's 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 fascinating. He's now a youth pastor in the Catholic Church, by the way. Wow. Um, and and it, so I think it put me in the lives of people who um, wondered, like, what how, what are you talking about, Christian kid? Why don't you want to go and do the things that we want to do? Um, I think they probably my experience of, of that was like I was going through a bit of a faith crisis, but they were also looking at me like, here's this really intense Christian kid who we, you know, we obviously can't talk about certain things around, you know, and, and he's obviously not going to come to the strip club with us. And so it was a really interesting time of kind of um, my faith bumping up against the reality of, of uh, people who, you know, didn't follow Jesus and had big questions. Yeah. Interesting. So what was the faith crisis about? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a vocational crisis at oh, its sure. core. I mean, I think it was a, a sense of part. Part of it was probably, what do you do with a philosophy major? I think part of it was, um, I was pretty clear about the direction I was going in, and now I find myself in Chicago, um, just, just kind of you know making thirty thirty thousand dollars a year. My wife finishing up a nursing degree with not a whole lot of clarity. Um, 
And I think what's interesting about that is that what emerged out of that was that youth pastor who had had such a big impact on me, um, went to a seminary, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And around kind of around the last few months that we were in Chicago, I just had this sense that my, my dad had left my mom. He was now down in Orlando. I just had this sense of, you know, I need to go down by my dad. And, you know, this guy who had such a profound impact on me went to uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. So what if I just go to seminary there? I remember telling my wife, I, I promise I'm not getting getting into ministry, but maybe I'll just do an MDiv and I'll go off and I'll do my PhD and that will be that. And so that was the next step in the journey. Yeah. Okay. So you went down there. It's uh, Florida's an interesting place, isn't it? Like it's always kind of a, it's got its own little, little culture <laughs> yeah. to, to me, which I always think is kind of fascinating. Did yes. you find that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly right. It's yeah. so strange. Even Christianity there is very, it's got different pockets. There's, there's such an interesting thing, but yes. you're yes. in kind of the reformed uh, circles then it sounds like. Well, so yeah. So in the, in the mid nineties, that would have been a time when, um, people were beginning to flock to RTS because a guy named RC Sproul was down there. Okay. Um, and, uh, there are a number of other great faculty. It turns out you went for RC Sproul, you stayed for, for the other faculty, but, um, you know, it was, it was this, and, and, and so this, it was a really interesting season of, of, uh, for me, not going with this clear call to ministry. I mean, I, I was, all my peers wanted to be pastors. And so, there, my story of anxiety sort of continues in that season as I look around and I say, wow, he's got certainty, he's got clarity, and he's got, and she, she, I mean, there were men and women during that time at RTS uh, studying there, um, which was for me the first um, entree to becoming egalitarian. Uh -huh. But um, it was a really interesting season of like, what, what am I going to do? And so I was, at first, I was, I was going to, I was going to uh, go in the direction of studying philosophy. And then that turned to theology and then that turned to New Testament studies. And um, I ended up spending a summer in Oxford, England, because that was going to be sort of the proving ground uh, to, to study with a particular scholar. Um, you know, I felt like a big deal. I, you know, I was in Oxford. I had to, I, yeah. I bought the hat, I bought the sweatshirt, you know, and yet um, that was probably the height of my anxiety. I mean, just full on panic attacks as I read these, wow. 20 page papers that I had put together every week. I had to put together a 20 page scholarly paper for my, my tutor uh, on intertestamental apocalyptic literature. And I think that that's where my sense of you are just a phony and a fraud. Um, what, what business do you have being here? Who are you? All of it was coming to a head in the summer of 1997 in Oxford, England. Well, what, okay. What was that about? Because I'm really really curious about that sort of anxiety because i my guess is that a lot yeah. more people at seminary feel that way than let on <laughs> yeah yeah and i think so i think I, I think that what i hinted at earlier was that i mean i felt so much anxiety growing up but i had nowhere to kind of talk about it um my mom and dad weren't really present to it curious about it necessarily um i'd known kind of here and there that there was anxiety in my family that there was alcoholism things like that but it's just not stuff that you talked about and then you know, you're just put together in seminary in the mid nineties and, um, you want to imitate these, these really, um, incredible theologians. You want to look like them, you want to talk like them. And, uh, you know, I think I, 
I always felt like the kid, the kid, you know, sitting at the kids' table, um, looking over at all of these. I mean, one of my 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 good friends during that time, and still a good friend, uh, went on to get his PhD in theology. He's written numerous books. Another friend, PhD in theology, has written numerous. I mean, that some of the names that came out at that time were are they're they're to this day pretty extraordinary theologians, and so. Yeah. Yeah, there was a sense of like, what, you know, you don't belong here, Chuck. Why are you here? Uh, and um, but I think the other thing is, and here here's the seed of the narcissism book. Um, I'm looking around and um, I'm 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 watching a couple of, of people during that time who are um, who are playing the role of you know they're doing the MDiv thing, the theology thing, and yet. Um, I know about what's going on behind the scenes. I know about kind of the secret lives. And, um, and uh, I remember this one guy who was um, having an affair with someone else during the time. He said, um, uh, they wouldn't do anything about it if they caught me. In fact, I could throw a rock through the president's window and they would just laugh. Oh, I had no wow. clue. I had no I- idea of what narcissism was at the time, but that was my <laughs> first, I think that was probably my first hint of it right then and there. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. All right. So I'm just trying to trying to observe that. I mean, that's what's interesting about that is there's a not dis, too dissimilar from a certain uh, quote from a uh, once and former president. Uh, if you, do, right. do you remember? Yeah. Oh yeah. I know. Exactly. He said he could shoot people in New York City. Anyway, like, oh, yeah. okay. He made that statement at my college, my old college. So did he yeah. really? Oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I right. didn't realize you made that there. Wow. What a, okay. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Speaking of narcissists. Okay. So, uh, really, that's just, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So you're seeing kind of this disconnect between, Hey, we believe these things, but we don't do these things. That's right. And you're feeling yeah. it yourself as well. I, I'm feeling it myself and it's spilling over. I, I get really sick that summer in England. I, um, and I don't know at the time that it's because I'm just chronically anxious, but I think, mm-hmm. I think that, uh, I know that there's something wrong. And the last person I want to talk to is the professor of counseling at the seminary because he's weak. Uh, <laughs> he deals with, he deals with emotions. Oh, I don't want to deal with emotions. Right. So can you say <laughs> something about that? Cause this is one of my hobby horses, right? Like every time I talk yeah. about emotions or, and or love, which yeah. I on Facebook with some of my friends, like I get all this kind of really interesting comments, like, yeah. well, you know, emotions aren't real. Like, yes. Yeah, yeah. they are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So, so, but you, you grew up in kind of that and you felt that way. Well, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, what, what you begin to understand about our theological perspectives is that they're all informed by our stories, our psychology. Right. And so, yeah, for those of us who cut ourselves off from emotion, emotion isn't real. You know, how could mm. it be real? We don't, you know, at some level we're we're scared of it. I certainly think I was. I, I certainly think that as I sat in class with this professor, there was something about what he was saying that was was probably um, activating something inside of me. But but at the same time, he was he was a guy who I thought to sit down with, um, and he was gracious enough to sit down with me and actually actually say some hard things to me. I mean, he's the guy who said. You know, right now, if you were to graduate, you would be dangerous. Um, he also, he also, uh, that wasn't the only thing he said. Thank the Lord. You know, <laughs> right. he, he named some of, of, of what I was carrying. I think he named the burden that I, I felt like I was carrying. And um, I mean, I, I remember crying, uh, crying in a way I'd never, I hadn't cried with another human being before. I like that kind of cathartic 
cry. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's really interesting is he ended up leaving the seminary. I came back to teach as an adjunct and um, got an office. There was his office. And I, I, I remember there being looking down after I was had wept and there was like a puddle on the floor there. I mean, and I could swear I could see that stain on the floor. I mean, it wasn't really there, but I, I mean that it was, it was incredible to be in that office years later and to realize like, this is the office where I just wept, wept and wept, you know? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that sounds like broke the dam. Broke the dam. You can't go back. You can't plug it after that. You can't go back. Uh, And I think what, what ends up happening there is that he's this guy, this counseling professor is pretty smart in this sense. He, he knows that like, he can't say to a guy like me, just do therapy. So he says, why don't you do this? Why don't you stick around for an extra year and tack on a, another degree, um, a degree in mental health counseling? It'll only take you one more year. You can jump into the program this year and, um, and you'll be on your way. That'll be really good for, for you, for your wife. It'll slow you down, maybe get some more clarity about the PhD. And so it gave me a narrative. It gave me sort of, a, oh, I can do this. And I can explain to friends, well, I'm just getting another degree. It's not like I'm going to therapy. The problem with that is that in the counseling program, RTS in 1997, I was one of like three men. Um, And and so um, men didn't do the program. Uh, And my my friends, my experience at least, and I can't say that this was the case, but my experience was that in in that season when I said to friends, hey, this is what I'm going to do there was a sense of what, what's going on with you? What, yeah. What's happened to Chuck? I mean, I, I know that that narrative began to emerge because my wife heard it and others heard it. Like what is, you know, what's going on with Chuck? What's, what's happened to him? Um, and so. Because it wasn't uh, considered masculine. I think that that was, that was a part of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, huh. I mean, I, I can't, I, I don't know that I, I can wrap my mind around what that was about for some of the, some of the guys during that time. Um, but I do think that I, I lost some community during that season. It, I went from, you know, the guy who was going to be studying at St. Andrews. I, I was going to go on to study with a guy named Richard Bauckham at St. Andrews. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was going to study the book of revelation and, and apocalyptic wow. to, I'm going to do a master's program in counseling with all these women, by the way, who the guys would sort of make fun of, you know, like they're the women in the counseling program are. <laughs> You know, they're just touchy feely and they're just into their, you know, all the stuff. So, right. But also uh, unimportant. Right. Like it's important to study revelation and apocalyptic right. literature and to say that, that to be impressive. able to talk about that, right. Yes. And to talk about your feelings or to talk about the human person is yes. not. And I, if I may be so bold, that's one of the things that is a real problem in evangelical thinking, uh, the person matters. I mean, this, this was the great gift of, um, 1997 and 1998 is that I went from, um, being this kind of lone ranger up in my head into a program, a lot of women, um, and then female supervisors, um, who were sharp and they caught on right away. And, uh, what ended up happening is, um, uh, I, I didn't just have a kind of a nice experience of discovering my m- emotions. Um, I was, I was caught. Um, I, I remember, uh, I was in a counseling session. They had one of those windows or actually it was a camera. They could see me counseling, right. And I was counseling a female 
woman just a little younger than me. And I thought it was a really good counseling session. I walk out, my female supervisor says, Hey, for the next, cancel your next client for the next hour. You're going to be with me. Um, so I think, I think, okay, this is, you know, they do this every now and then. So I, I sit down with my female supervisor and a group of women um, who are my peers. And she says, how do you think that counseling session went? And I said, I think it went so well. I mean, I built trust with her. We talked about her favorite music. We talked, you know, all the stuff, right? And she's looking at me and then she's looking around at some of the other women. And, and she says, Chuck, uh, if you consider flirting with a woman for 45 minutes, a session going well, then um, I think we've got a problem. Oh, and wow. for the next hour, she and my female colleagues deconstruct me, my story, my relationship with my mom, my uh, how I show up with women. I mean, so what what it did was I I was I was found out. I was my stuff was dealt with. I mean, my misogyny was brought into the light. You know? yeah. So I mean, so for, you know, in the mid 90s, for a guy who's a pretty conservative, uh, reformed guy at the time, for all that to come to the light in the way it did, but within a safe community, I want to emphasize that within a community, it was like, so, so it's going to be really hard and you're going to cry a lot. And this is going to hurt, but you know, the surgery is going to be really good. And in the end, um, we're going to put you back together and you're going to be whole. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was really pretty incredible. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, so sometimes I ask about like a dark night of the soul. Was this that for you? This was not that. Oh, okay. No, my dark, my dark night is yet to come. Okay. All right. We'll get there. We'll <laughs> yeah, get there. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. okay. Bridge that gap for me then. Where'd you go? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so I, the next conversation, um, so that's a transformational two years. It really is. I mean, in, um, in ways that we can talk about for the next two hours, yeah. um, I, I've never experienced that kind of community. Um, I've never been seen in the ways I was seen. My story held in the way that my story was held. Um, and, um, and so, so something, I mean, I'm, I'm different. And uh, at the same time, like, I'm, I'm not going to go off and do my PhD at this point. You know, I, I really feel like a, a little kid who, needs to stay close to mommy and daddy for a little while, you know, so I'm going to stay in the Orlando area and um, I need to stay around some of these folks who've been really important to me. I need to keep going to get counseling from the guy I'm getting counseling with. And so uh, one of my professors, a preaching professor who happened to be a pastor in the area, um, we begin a conversation and he says, why don't you come on as my assistant pastor? Church plant about uh, probably six, seven, eight years old. Um, my my uh, counseling professor says, "Don't touch that with with a hundred foot pole. Like you just don't take that job. You're mm. for a lot of different reasons. Uh, don't don't do it." But I I'm anxious now, and I'm thinking that you know, like um, my wife, she's a nurse at the time. Um, she was an AIDS nurse in the in the '90s. She was doing oh, wow. a lot of the you know just a lot of the stuff that was going. A lot of the new research she was doing, but she was kind of done with that. And she's like, "When are we going to have kids? What's next for us?" And so I take the job at a, a church plant. And um, that, that proves to be six really important um, uh, years for me. Um, and I, you want me to describe that? Because it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's like, it's sort of, it's sort of um, gosh, I don't even know how to encapsulate it. Because, you, you know, obviously in your first ministry gig, you learn so much. Right. Um, I, I think uh, 
I, I started a counseling center during that time, hired counseling staff. I was doing counseling myself. myself. I made all the mistakes the first pastor makes. Um, I was still in Orlando, so I was still getting the benefit of being an incredible community. I planted a church within a church called Sojourn. Um, it was kind of the, you know, in the, that, it was a baby boomer church. And in the midst of that, I, I planted in the early 2000s, the kind of the darker, you know, couches and candles and liturgical yeah, yeah. and, you know, come as you are kind of church. Um, I think at the same time, one of the things that I, I, I learned in retrospect was that I was, I was kind of discovering for myself a new kind of fundamentalism in the sense that now, now, you know, now I've discovered um, how to do life well and authentically. And, and by the way, if you don't do life like this, um, like a lot of the people in my church, like my senior pastor, because they're just baby boomers who wear suits and ties and um, they don't get it like I get it. That's a problem. Um, and so, you know, I became uh, judgmental uh, and um, there was increasing friction between me and the senior pastor. And um, one thing led to another. And uh, sort of long story short, uh, 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 he fires me. Um, six years in, um, I'm uh, called into uh, an elder meeting, and the elders say to me, the senior pastor thinks that you want to take over the church, which was not true at all. And I think, you know, I, it'd be really easy for me to sort of point the finger and say there are some seeds of narcissism in him, but I would say that there were some seeds of narcissism in me as well. Yeah. But there was, in, at least in his mind, this sense of like, Chuck wants to take over the church. Um, and he felt threatened by me for some reason. Um, and, uh, I was out of a job with, um, not a great severance. And so thus begins the dark night. Okay. Here we are. Okay. Uh, that, that lasts for, I would say, uh, little did I know it lasts for another 10 years. Um, oh, wow. What's really, what's really interesting about this is that, uh, uh, what ends up happening is, um, I, I don't really realize it at the time, but I go into this mode of, I have to survive. Um, so my body goes into this sort of chronic trauma state that I'm in for at least the next 10 years where it's like, I've got to survive. What do I do to survive? Well, I'm a therapist. Um, I'll jump into a counseling practice or I'll start building a client load. Um, not long after that, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando says, hey, why don't you move your office over to the seminary and start teaching for us? And so I start teaching for the seminary. I'm teaching a bigger load than most full-time faculty while seeing a full-time client load, supervising wow. in the clinic, and I start a PhD program in psychology. Um, people don't do that unless they're in a chronic state of anxiety and, and trauma. <laughs> and, but I don't know at the time. I'm trying to help other people get healthy, but I'm in a kind of like, I just have to go. And I'm about as far from God as you can be, I think, at the time, which is interesting for a guy who's, you know, discovering contemplative spirituality and the mystics in the late nineties and, yeah. and that whole stream. Um, uh, you know, it's just at that point, it's just me trying to survive. Yeah. Fascinating. And so you got really, really busy. Trying, That's right. Trying to do all the things. That's right. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So you're far away from God. I, I find that fascinating too. Like we can do all the right things, right? We can do the contemplative yeah. stuff. We can, yeah. All the things and still not have our hearts yeah. uh, connected to God at all. Yeah. 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 
I think I defaulted to what my body knew. I knew how to be competent. I knew how to be put together. Um, now, now my package of competency and vulnerability, uh, my package of competency comes with the addition of vulnerability or like at least yeah. what I call now vulnerability, feigned vulnerability. I mean, I think, I think that I can talk the language and, and I mean, I, what's really interesting about that is like during that time I'm teaching, I'm teaching at the seminary, um, I'm, I've developed this model of, of counseling that I'm calling like a new Exodus model using the narrative of, of, uh, of the Exodus story that turns into my first book. Um, Finding God in the Wilderness Places is the subtitle of the book, right? Which is, which is, you know, cause yeah. I'm lost at the time. So I'm, I think it's probably autobiographical. I'm, I'm really trying to find God in the midst of my own wilderness. Um, Did you know that? No, I don't think I knew that. I don't think, I, I think that I was in trauma survival mode. Yeah. Um, I think, I think what I ended up happening was I, I began to connect the dots in 2006, seven, somewhere around there intellectually, like Chuck, something's going on here. You're pushing really hard. You're just surviving. Um, and it's, I, as soon as I started getting a bit of momentum in that kind of inner journey, um, well, then a church in San Francisco calls and says, uh, would you like to come on staff and be be a past teaching pastor here, uh, start a counseling center for us? And also, by the way, we're thinking about starting a West Coast seminary. Um, and it's like salvation is is West, <laughs> you know, yeah. go West, young man. Um uh, it felt like it really did feel like rescue in the sense of like, oh, yeah, someone sees me, sees my gifts. They're willing to kind of take me on. Um, the seminary pretty much told me that I I was I was not going to be able to come on full time as a as a, a professor, um, probably for theological reasons. I was drifting a bit, maybe. Yeah. And so so then I find myself out at City Church San Francisco uh with a new kind of busyness, with a new kind of productivity. Now I'm entrepreneur pastor, Chuck, you know, building a counseling center, building new begin house of studies out there. And, uh, um, but now coming to a new level of exhaustion where this story of chronic anxiety and trauma is catching up with me. Yeah. Okay. So how does that, how's that end up happening finally? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that, I think that, um, uh, one of the things that happens in the midst of that is I kind of um, uh, stumble upon a, a counseling paradigm. Um, it's too much to get into right now, but a way of yeah. understanding um, human beings and our complexity that looks at us as as um, as, as kind of basically um, fragmented. Like there are parts of us, there are parts of us that are um, that are productive, and there are parts of us that are really young and hold trauma, um, and uh, and this starts to make sense to me so much so that I, I look up therapists, internal family systems therapists in um, the Bay Area, and I, I land on a guy who's kind of kind of a leader, an author, um, and he's got a spot for me. And so I start doing my own counseling, and I realized my soul is is about as fractured and fragmented. Like I did I did some counseling, but but then then the the firing happens and the trauma of that, and and yeah. I, I haven't really picked up. The, the disparate pieces of my psyche at this point. And so he starts, you know, piece by piece, putting me back together. Um, 
but right before the narcissism book in I think 2016, I published a book called Wholeheartedness. And I mean, in a sense, that's autobiographical. Um, it's, it's a book, it's a book uh, uh, about um, the, 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 the wholeness that God creates us for. But, but really what I'm doing in that is I'm sort of teasing out how we live such fragmented lives. And um, what I'm not doing in that book necessarily is telling my story, but it's my story's all over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was fragmented. I was fractured. I was exhausted, really. Um, that's where I begin the book, talking about shame, feeling exhaustion. We're all listening to Brene Brown at this point, read, reading yeah. Brene Brown. Um, things are going really well in San Francisco. Um, I'm, I'm getting to, I, I've started the counseling center. Uh, I've, I've, I've been elevated to kind of a um, lead pastor on the staff. I've helped co-found this West Coast seminary. Um, they put me on stage to speak with Tim Keller and other people. I'm getting opportunities to do things and, and write, write my first book. And none of it feels like it's, I'm back in 1997 again. Like none of it really feels authentic at some level. Like I'm just exhausting myself. Um, and, and they want me to be, I mean, these are really good folks. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not saying anything about the people I was working alongside, but they want me to do really well. They need me to be competent and put together. And like the Bay area wants that demands that of you at some level. Um, but you know, I'm, I go to therapy over the Golden Gate Bridge up into Marin County and I sit down with Jay early and what I'm getting in touch with is parts of me that feel like they're five or six years old. The scared little boy inside me. That's like, I just want to hide. I just want to run away. Um, I can't do it. I'm not up for this. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I, I drive back over the Golden Gate Bridge and I've got to be confident, Chuck, who, you know, is put together and, and you know, um, you know, kind of, kind of is building the infrastructure of these things. And um, so, I mean, I'm experiencing my own sense of contradiction and dividedness yeah. at that time. Yeah, that uh, duality seems like it would be really hard to bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I think this is just where, uh, you know, so much of the work on narcissism for instance, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder by any means, but I think, I think we all, um, at some level have to reckon with our own dividedness. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. there's certainly a part of me that was on display that was incredibly competent and could do things and, um, achieve things. And, and there are parts of me that were, um, incredibly fragile, scared, vulnerable, ashamed, um, and like those, those two stories hadn't been joined. And, and I think that maybe that was possible in the Bay Area, but I think I, I had this sense that I'm just not sure, given all that I'm responsible for, that that's possible. And I think that they want me to be this guy. And, um, and so, and I don't know if I could have articulated that as clearly as I just articulated it, but um, what ended up happening is we had a partner seminary here in West Michigan called Western Theological Seminary. And I was out here back and forth to, you know, the, I, I mean, I was the guy who sort of put together the partnership in the beginning. And so, um, and they, at one point they said to me, what would you ever be interested in moving out here and being our pastoral care guy? And like maybe nurturing the San Francisco relationship from the inside. And I was like, no, I think in part because I love this idea of I'm in San Francisco and that yeah. feels like a really important and cool place to be. And city church is sort of like, they had left the PCA, but they were sort of like the West Coast successful church plant 
in the image of Tim Keller's, you know, East Coast uh, Redeemer Church. Yeah. And it had a great reputation in many ways. And um, a lot of people, you know, and other denominations were looking at it as kind of the model church. And now I was getting to be a kind of spokesperson for that. Um, and yet well, the strange thing that I tell people is that, you know, as I sat, I remember sitting at um, my hotel at one point at um, in Holland, Michigan, with this sense of, um, and you recognize this, you know, when you use the language of dark night of the skull, soul, there's this, um, you know, in the, in the Spanish, it's um, la noche oscura. Um, oh, yeah. It's an invitation into obscurity in a sense, right? And as I was discovering that I was in the midst of this dark night, there was a simultaneously in, simultaneous invitation into, I think, a season of obscurity. Like, what would it look like for you to become a junior faculty member at a Midwest seminary where you're not responsible for anyone or anything. You're not in charge. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. You don't have to be on stage necessarily like in San Francisco and do all the things. And um, I mean, I can tell you that when I, when I said that out loud, that was met by a number of people with that's just the most stupid thing I've mm -hmm. ever heard. Um, and some people have influenced even like I heard through the grapevine, like what, what, is Chuck having a nervous breakdown? What's wrong with him? Why would he do this? Why would he leave City Church? Um, this is a theme for really you. What's that? This is a theme for you. you. I think so. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that there's always been a kind of core restlessness, but there's there's also a, um, you know, I've, I've got to take the risk. I've got to, I've got to have the courage to move um, into a place of um, authenticity, for lack of a better way yeah. of saying it. And it just felt like this was this was that move for me, for us, for our family. Um, and the reality is, is people just just didn't know how fragmented my soul was. You know, I mean, they they didn't know how tired I was. That I was, you know, I was coping by over drinking. Um, I was staying up. I mean, I work all day, and then I'd write at night. Um, that I, you know, I lost. I feel like I lost gaps of time with my family, with my kids during that mm. season where I was pushing so hard. And that's chronic anxiety and that's what really what trauma does in your body and so um you know the move to the midwest was like a homecoming in a sense even for a long island boy because i was coming mm. back to like these i think even moving from long island to to sioux center iowa for me was like i moved to a simpler place yeah and um i was moving to the midwest i was moving to a simpler place and that felt really important and the Midwest, I mean, you're a Midwestern guy, you know, it It gets mocked, you know, but, oh, yeah. but it is, it's glorious. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, I needed the spaciousness of the Midwest to sort of find myself and find God again, I think, you know, I love that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's, there is a simplicity to things, you know, that, that, uh, you know, and the food, man, you can't beat the food. I'll tell you that. That's, <laughs> that's good. Um, Interesting. Well, I, I really love that. So you moved to Michigan. Did, how did you resolve? So maybe, maybe how, I don't know, but how'd you resolve your dark night? Like how did God yeah. step in there? how did you find yourself closer? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't an overnight kind of thing. I think it just, it, it was, it was resolving in and through the therapeutic work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was resolving in the decision to sort of, um, you know, the, the vocational decision to, to, you know, in the words of Henry Nowen, to move in the direction of downward mobility. Yeah. Um, I took a massive pay cut and I was moving from the Bay Area to the Midwest, but 
um, you don't get paid a ton as a faculty member compared to a, really? being a pastor, lead pastor in the Midwest. And, right. you know, I mean, it was a pay cut. It was, but there was very much this sense of like, um, uh, I'm putting my laptop away in the evenings. Um, you know, I remember the first summer we were here, I, I just worked outside. I hadn't had a yard, you know, I, I mm. was, I was like, um, it was like Adam in the garden, you know, and I was taming a wild creation in a sense. It was like, uh, I was chopping down bushes and shrubs and, um, I was getting my hands dirty. Um, I, I wasn't on my, my laptop. Uh, I was on a faculty with, with, a, a bit, some veteran colleagues who could sort of, um, kind of show me what it, what it, what it was like to be in this kind of new role of now being the teacher. I mean, I was just probably, I just uh, turned 40 a couple of years before. So now I'm navigating, you know, a bit of midlife stuff to early 40s stuff. Uh, that was about eight years ago. And so it was a good season of, of rest, refreshment, putting the pieces, the fragmented pieces of my soul back together. Um, uh, it, it had its share of pain too, but I mean, it was by and large a season of reorientation after the disorientation. Yeah, that's awesome. What did you learn about yourself through all that? Um, you know, I I I think that um, there's been been this sort of, and, and I I've been been continuing to learn it. I turned fifty last summer. This sense that. Um, I thought I'd arrived at different stages of my life. You know, I thought, well, I, I got my theology down. I've arrived. You know, what a gift I am to reform theological seminary. <laughs> you know, then I was uh, kind of planting this church within the church, and there were people coming who were like, Chuck is such an authentic pastor, and there are couches and candles, and we can really be real here. And I, you know, people are crying in worship, and I thought I'd arrived. You know, I thought, well, this is it. This is what it means to be um, enlightened, you know, Um I think that I think that there was a time even when I was teaching at the seminary where I had this sense of like, you know, I'm the guy that people come to. I'm I'm the professor that they trust. Um, I go out to San Francisco and um, there's that similar kind of sense. But all the while, my own my I'm dragging my stuff behind. And I tell this story. I wrote a book um, called Toughest People to Love, where I tell this story of I'm really again autobiographical. I'm telling my own story, yeah. but like. Robert Bly tells a story of discovering the long invisible bag that we drag behind us with our stuff. And I think I met, I think I, I was just dragging my bag. And finally, you know, in, in uh, even despite the therapy I did, I'd never done therapy quite like the therapy I had in San Francisco, where it was like, I opened up that bag and I started naming, naming the division, na you know, like just naming the fraudulence of my life, naming my vulnerability, naming. And so, um, there's just been there's just been this gradual sort of revelation of my vulnerability, and I think I even in turning fifty, there there was a I'm I'm much more content in my own skin now. I mean I I don't think by any means I'm whole, but I think that there's just been this reckoning with the the um, the, the sides of me that I'm uh, like for instance, even showing up to this, Eric. I think even five years ago, I would have been really, really anxious. And I, I'm very much in my body these days in a way that I wasn't embodied, I think, for years. And so I'm grateful for that. There's a long way to go, but I um, probably just more, uh, the bag has been opened and, um, you know, my stuff is out there now, you know. 
Yeah. Which is really fascinating. Um, I think that whole thing of, you know, body and, you know, I grew up, so growing up in the Midwest, you know, we were very, certainly even theologically, we were almost Gnostic, right? To the sense that we were like, spiritual is good, bodies doesn't matter, right? Or physical world doesn't matter. Which, uh, so to hear you talk about that, okay, I'm much more grounded and kind of present in my body is, is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Um, so thank you for sharing all of that, Chuck. I, so I know we're kind of coming up on time. If you got some time, yeah. I want to talk about, uh, about when narcissism comes to church, because I'm so yeah. fascinated by this idea. And we kind of st- talked about a little bit at the beginning that, that evangelicalism is kind of having this conversation with itself. I mean, I'm, I'm listening. I don't know if you've seen this already. Um, the, uh, was the rise and fall of Mars Hill Christianity today yeah. is putting out. Yeah. Have you listened yeah. to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, as a podcaster, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way they're doing it, which yes. is interesting, but, but, um, yeah. the, but more is like, why do we have all these narcissist narcissistic pastors or pastors who yeah. seem to be like, it's all about them. Yeah. Well, you know, so um, there are so many different ways of answering that. Um, I Give me I the think, scandalous one that I can promote on social. Wait, wait never mind. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, what's interesting is, uh, and I'm, I may have talked to Kristen DeMay about this because I, I mean, you know, her book is like this tour de force, right? And yeah. there, are, there are historical answers to that. Like narcissism in the church is not just a 20, 25 year phenomenon. I mean, I think we can trace it back to the rise of evangelicalism and the mega church and that, you know, Mike, Mike in the podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is getting into some of those dynamics, I think, but I, I think it's baked into American culture. I think it's baked into manifest destiny. I think it's, you know, I think it's baked into whiteness, you know, Willie uh, Jim yeah. Jennings um, uh, book after whiteness, you know, mastery and control is part and parcel with whiteness. I mean, so I think we can go in a lot of different directions with this. I think a church planting movement with by and large white pastors who went to urban centers thinking that they were going to save the city, ne- never taking the time to ask, you know, black church pastors in the city who'd been there for maybe generations. Hey, what have you done? You know, what, right. what's going on in the city for a long time? So there's been plenty of critique, you know, Christina uh, Cleveland's critique of, of the church planting movement. I think there's a lot that goes into that question. Um, I do think that, you know, over the last, so I, having been, I was hired in a church plant in 1997, you know, I, I sort of experienced the rise of church planting. I got involved pretty early on in doing church planting assessments. And there was this sort of this, this movement of like church planting is going to save the soul of, of America. It's going to save the church. I mean, this is what you do. This is what gifted guys do. Um, um, and I, I was a part of that, you know, um, what's, what's challenging about that is even in my early assessments, going back into the early two thousands, I was, I was noticing that they were, they were approving a certain kind of guy, most, and mostly guys right back in the day, almost exclusively yep. guys, they were approving a certain kind of guy that had charisma, um, that was inspiring, that could communicate well. Um, but but there was no com- real conversation at the time about character, yeah, um, about yeah. humility. It was all about giftedness. It's all about, um, man, he can raise money. Man, he's great up on stage. Man, is he is he incredible to be around? Um, and aren't they a pretty couple? 
but there was really nothing at all about character. And I think for so many of us, I mean, what I just described in my story is 50 years of character development, you know, right. I, I'm only beginning to, to discover a kind of, um, as Thomas Merton once said, a hidden wholeness, you know, and I'm 50 years old and we're putting guys on stage at 22, you know, 25, 30 years old and saying, yep. you know, take over this multi-site, run this congregation. And it, and it was really, really dangerous. And I think we're, we're, we're reaping the, you know, the effects of that now in the evangelical church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, what I find fascinating is that we, you're, you're so put the nail on the head there. You know, I guys go to seminary right out of college, right? So they're, so they're 22, 23, they go to seminary and they get their degrees, yeah. 25, 26, 27, yeah. something like that. Right. Come on. If and, they even go to seminary. Right. Right. And then they think they know everything and they go out and yeah. they're going to change the world. And that's the hubris of the young, right? That's yes. fine. Yes. Yeah. But that's fantastic. If your goal needs energy and it needs uh, people to, um, you know, to, to be charismatic and to push in order to grow the, put put butts in seats. Right. Yeah. But what it's not great at is developing people into Christ likeness. Yeah. Right. And that's what we're seeing. And that's what, so instead, because a leader can only take people as far as they have been. And so instead we've got to have uh, people, this is my hobby horse, sorry, but, the, no, but no, no, we, we've got, we got spiritually mature leaders, mature people who have reached at least who know they know themselves. So they know, uh, you know, some of the things to look for, right. Some of those moments yeah. to go, wait a minute, yeah. that's not good. Right. Yeah. And who have good people, you know, I'm, I'll never forget the whole um, Ted Haggard thing here in Colorado, right? Like, the that dude had nobody right and that's the case for so many people yeah. pastors yeah yeah and you know i mean you talked about a whole generation of of men in particular who came up in their 20s right and some some of these guys didn't go to seminary they were just given a multi-site you know hey you're good just get up on stage you know you've been a part right. of my bible study um who who now you know they're they're uh, what i'm watching is um kind of hit midlife and they don't do their midlife work. You know, they don't, mm. um, they, they come up against the, uh, you know, now they've been on staff for 15 years. They've been running the, the church. They planted the church. They've been running it. There are a trail of dead bodies behind them. Um, and there's a reckoning and they choose to fight it. You know, this is what I've experienced. And this is in part what inspired the book is because I was seeing these guys, um, fight the reckoning. You know, I've seen them confronted. I was seeing people come out and say, Hey, can I give you a sense? Can I, can I tell you what it's like to, you know, to experience your leadership and they weren't receiving it. There was no genuine sense of repentance and confession. Wow. They were not doing their inner work. They were not taking seriously their impact. And so I think, I think that what uh, my, my hope has been, and I think some of the other books that have come out is that there would be this conversation generated that would sort of create the energy and maybe the accountability uh, around some of these pastors, some of these churches, some of these movements. So the questions are asked. Yeah. Um, I was a pastor for a long time, so I'm not anti-pastor, right? I'm yeah. not anti-church. I'm not anti-pastor. Um, but I, I do want to see churches led by women and men who have character and humility. And, um, and so I do think we're in the midst of a kind of reckoning right now. And, um, 
but it's we're very much in, in what Walter Brueggemann calls the disorientation or deconstruction stage of it right now. Yeah. Like, a lot of us are wondering what in the world is going to happen um, because a lot is is being um, challenged right now. A lot is being deconstructed. There's a lot of disorientation, but uh, you know what is what is the hope five ten years from now? What's the church going to look like? What does church planting look like down the road? And those are all the questions yet to be answered. Yeah, that'll be fascinating. All right, one other question I want to ask you. If you got to go, let me know. Um, yeah, five more minutes. Okay, perfect. Because what you have a whole chapter on gaslighting and kind of this yeah. whole idea of spiritual and and emotional abuse, and that just really struck me. I've lo- I've referred to it multiple times because. I feel like so much of what I've been taught to do as a Christian, even in the name of apologetics in the name of, you know, all kinds of scriptural interpretation, all these things is turns out to just really be a bunch of gaslighting. And that makes me not only, it just makes me furious, but also deeply, deeply sad. And so like, is that, what do we do about that? And what, what's, you know, I don't know. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I mean, when I think about gaslighting, I think I think about um, I think about a kind of crazy making behavior, like you're not who you seem to be. You know, you're right. you're a guy who you're a guy who's on stage seems incredibly charismatic, um, put together. You know your Bible, but behind the scenes, you shame me, you bully me, you're condescending. You know, and that's really the divided life that I was getting at, sort of autobiographically earlier. And I I think if we're not attuned to our dividedness. Um, we, we don't reckon with those parts of our story, um, and, and, uh, that where, you know, where there is pain, where there is shame, where there's addiction. Um, and we, we become the bully, we become the narcissistic leader who bullies. Right. And so I, I do think that, um, one of the, one of the hardest things that I've experienced, uh, in this work over now, 20 plus years, when I do this work with lead pastors who are on the narcissistic spectrum is when we really get to that, that point as, as we're naming some things in their life and, and there's this resistance. And I mean, I've actually had pastors say, Chuck, if I do what you're asking me to do, if I go to these places, you're asking me to go. Um, you don't realize like I will lose my edge. Um, I, you know, I'll lose, I'll lose the thing that makes me me you know, people follow me because I'm an asshole, you know, right. People follow me because I'm brash and I'm abrasive and you're, you're wanting me to be kinder and gentler. You're wanting me, me to be vulnerable. And I'm afraid, you know, like if I, if I'm acquainted, if I become acquainted with that little boy inside me and all of his pain, I'll just be a puddle. And, um, and I'm, I just can't do that. I can't afford that. I mean, I've, I've had guys say versions of like that, that to me. And it's pretty incredible. Well, it is. And it just feeds my theory that most evangelical churches cannot take people to spiritual maturity because they, they're not there. Because one, the pastors aren't there. And two, the structures are not made for that. They're made to keep their little church engines running. Um, I could preach about that all day. But Chuck, I really appreciate you sharing your story, sharing the book, sharing your work. Um, friends, it is well worth reading when narcissism comes to church, healing your community from emotional and spiritual abuse. Chuck, is there anything you want to leave us with? You know, um, I, I'm grateful that you host conversations like this. And one of the things I'm grateful for is just, um, the opportunity, not, not merely to talk about like, what are the dynamics of this? But I think, um, 
your your questions for me about my story. I mean, I, I think one of the dangers here is that um, even in writing a book like this is like, oh, here's here's someone now who you know has his crap together, and um, yeah, you know, and, and I and I think it's important for all of us to recognize our inner divisions and be on this journey to wholeheartedness. So, I mean, I want to leave people with the honest reality that we are all walking contradictions. And the sooner we name that, reckon with our dividedness, um, we come clean, we're honest about it, we have people in our life who know all these different sides of us, um, I, I think I, I think then together we'll be on the path to wholeness. Um, so I'm really grateful for the way you, you uh, honor my story and people's stories in your podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Friends, you can find Chuck at his website, which I have right here. She said should have had it. Where is it? Uh, Chuck DeGroat. Is it, what is it? Is it ChuckDeGroat.com? There it is. Chuck, not yeah. dot, dot net. Sorry about that. I had it and I didn't get it. All right, friends, you can find Chuck at ChuckDeGroat.net. I've got links to everything at HalfwayTherePodcast.com as usual. And uh, Chuck, thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Eric.